Welcome back to another lesson of Healing University. Again, my name is Barry Bennett. I'm an instructor here at Karis. And I'm with you today in this lesson, hopefully, to answer some questions. Uh, I deal, I teach a lot on healing. I, I write about healing. I have people that want to ask questions about healing, and I get to, to answer a lot of those questions. Uh, and I, sometimes I have people that don't really believe that... Uh, healing is for us today, or somehow that God picks and chooses who he may or may not heal, that kind of thing. And they have typical questions or uh, rebuttals that they come come back with. And so I want to go over three of the areas that I encounter the most often uh, with you in this particular lesson. I wanna, I'm going to have to go rather quickly, uh, but we're going to talk about Job. Usually the question is, but what about Job? Uh, so I want to talk about that with you. And then we're going to talk about Paul's thorn in the flesh. And we're going to discover what that was and what that wasn't. And then I want to end up with a few minutes on the man born blind uh, in John chapter 9. So I hope this will be a blessing to you. The reason that this is so important is that when we're talking about, and this section of our healing university is about healing in redemption. When we're talking about redemption, we have to understand that redemption is for every person on this earth. It is available to every person on this earth. And all of the benefits of redemption are available to every person on this earth. If we can create any doubt whatsoever, if there's something that produces doubt in your heart, no matter how small, then the possibility for faith is completely eliminated. You cannot have doubt in your heart at the same time and have faith. In other words, the, the, the doubt about some issue, well, but maybe in this case, God isn't willing to heal, or maybe in this case, something else is going on, that maybe is killing your faith. Therefore, it is important that we answer these questions so that you can rest assured that these particular instances have answers and that they have nothing to do with what Christ did on the cross for your healing. He bore your sins, he bore your sicknesses. Praise God. Now let me read some verses that make this so vitally important. In James 1, 6, and 7, 1 through, or 6 through 8, excuse me, James 1, verses 6 through 8. James is speaking, he says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And boy, how many Christians live like that. It's a sad state. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from God. This is so important. You cannot be in a place of doubt and expect to receive. The two are contradictory. Expectation and doubt don't go together. Faith and doubt certainly don't go together. And so that you will receive nothing from God. Verse 8, James 1.8. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so the one who is in doubt about the goodness of God, the grace of God, as I taught in another lesson, the one who is in doubt is going to be unstable, going to have a hard time with not only the doctrine of healing, but other doctrines as well. Always going to be judging God based on their own logic or their own emotions, or their own experience, or what happened to a relative, rather than understanding that the Word of God is our truth, and not our experience, or not someone else's experience. And so we've got to be sure that our belief system has eliminated 
all aspects of doubt so that we know that we know that we know that redemption is for, for everybody on this earth. It's a possibility that the grace of God has appeared to all men. But are we willing to stand in that grace without doubt? It says in Romans uh, 10.13, it says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever. Now, do we believe that? Do we not doubt that? Uh, some, some people may doubt that, but most Christians believe that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you look up the word saved, you're going to find the same aspects of, of, of deliverance from sin, forgiveness, eternal life, healing, and deliverance from other kinds of problems are all in that word saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Most Christians don't have a problem with that. They say, yeah, that's absolutely right. If, if someone believes on Jesus, then they're going to get saved. And there's no doubt. But then we move over into the subject of healing, and everybody starts to, to pull back. Well, you know, brother, God only heals if he wants to, if it be his will. Well, wait a minute. They're part of the same package. They're part of the same package. And so whoever believes on his name will be saved. That includes healing. All right? So we've got to eliminate the, the doubt issue. Will God forgive everybody's sins? If they believe on his name, will their sins be forgiven? Let's go to Psalm 103, verse 1. Psalm 103, verse 1. Uh, we're going to read 1 through 3. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Well, a lot of Christians have, forgetten, have forgotten some of his benefits. All right? Bless, uh, forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities? Do we believe that? Do you believe all your sins have been forgiven? Right? Most Christians, again, are going to believe that. But the verse goes on and says, who heals all your diseases? Do you believe that? Well, yeah. no, if there's a well, maybe, then you don't believe it. And really, it's saying you can't believe the other part of the verse either because they all go together. He forgives all your iniquities. He heals all your diseases. And so these questions that we're going to uh, answer here in a, in a moment... These are very important because if there's any room in your heart to think you might be like Job or you might have a thorn in the flesh like Paul or that you might be, uh, you were born sick for God's glory or if you have something going on inside of you like that, then that doubt is going to kill any expectation, any possibility to believe God and to receive his grace in your life. That's why this is so important. All right. In Acts 10.38, Acts 10.38, it says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil because God was with him. Or where God is, goodness happens and everybody gets healed. No questions asked. We go back to Acts 5.16. I brought this up in a previous lesson. In the first church in Jerusalem, after Jesus has left the scene, every sick person that came into the church in Jerusalem got healed. Every single one. There was no doubt. There was no lack of believing, well, maybe I'll get healed and Granny won't get healed. No, everybody got healed, including Granny. Everybody got healed. If you had been there, you would have gotten healed. And you'll say, well, why isn't that happening today? Because so many in the church don't believe it. They have doubt in their heart. 
Unbelief even stopped Jesus in his own hometown in, in Mark chapter 6. Uh, he was astounded at their unbelief. When people don't believe God, that's where the questions come, and that's when we start to create an excuse theology. An excuse theology makes excuses for you, your failure. So we need to get these questions answered so that we're not walking in the world of excuses. So let's move into Job. What about Job? Uh, I do a lot of teaching on Job. I'm going to have to really condense this. But we need to understand how Job correlates with a new covenant Christian, if at all. Okay, So Job says, if you're familiar with Job, that the enemy came, approached God, accused Job, and had, the, had uh, access to Job's life, we'll discuss that in a minute, and took everything he had and made him sick on top of it and killed all of his kids. All right, so it was a bad day. Okay, so in Job 1, 21 and 22, Job, this is how he responds to that. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, I was a missionary for many years in Latin America, and this is one of the most famous verses and most used verses in many churches. For anything anyone doesn't understand uh, that the enemy comes and does, they say, well, the Lord gave, and the Lord take away, takes away. The Lord gave, and the Lord took away. The Lord gave at funerals anywhere. Simply a lack of knowledge of God. Job said that, and we're going to find out he later repented for it. But what did Jesus say? It says in John 10.10, 10, the thief does not come except for to steal and to kill and destroy. Job said God did it. Jesus said the thief did it. Job didn't know that. The thief comes to steal, come and destroy. And Jesus went on to say in John 10.10, 10, I have come that they might have life. And they might have it abundantly. That's Jesus. So now we have to decide, who are we going to build our theology on? Our belief system. Is it going to be built upon Job or built upon Jesus? Who knew what they were talking about? Job or Jesus? Jesus knew what he was talking about. Job didn't. And so we're going to have to understand where Job was coming from and how these kinds of conclusions came into his heart uh, if we're going to under, get rid of any doubt in our heart about what Jesus came to do. He came to give you life and to give you life more abundantly. All right? So I want to talk to you quickly about eight differences between Job and a New Testament Christian. There are some very glaring differences between Job's life, Job's world, Job's reality, and our life, our world, our reality. Number one, Job didn't have a covenant with God. You say, well, yes, he did. Well, show me. Show me the covenant that God made with Job. You can't find it. And I will show you that it doesn't exist. Job did not have a covenant. He lived in fear. All right? It says, uh, we, we can go back to Abraham. Now, Job lived after the flood, but before Abraham. And we know Abraham had a covenant because we have a record of God's dealings with Abraham and how he made covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 15, 1, Genesis 15, 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. God promised to be Abraham or Abram's shield and his reward. Job had no shield. And he said, Do not be afraid, Abram. Job was afraid. 
So Job didn't have the same confidence in God because no promises had been made to Job. No covenant had been established. Israel had a covenant. In Israel's covenant, in Deuteronomy 28.7, Deuteronomy 28.7, it says, The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. That was a covenant that the enemy that came against Israel was going get, to get wasted. Job didn't have that. The enemy came against him, took everything. Job didn't have a covenant. Job said in Job 2.10, Job 2.10 says, Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? So Job was saying, well, Kesara, Sarah, if God wants to bless me, he blesses me. If he wants to take it all, he takes it all. If he wants to be good, I have to accept it. If he wants to give me adversity, I have to accept it. Because he didn't know any better. In the integrity of his heart, he said these things. But they weren't knowledgeable statements nor statements of truth concerning the reality that we have as Christians. So Job did not have a covenant. God hasn't changed. Covenants have changed. The way God deals with men according to covenant has changed. But God's nature hasn't changed in James 1.17. It says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Every good gift comes from God. God doesn't steal, kill, and destroy. God is not the thief. The thief is the thief. The enemy is the thief. Job didn't know that. All right, so he had no covenant. He had no protection. God is still a good God. All right, second difference between Job and a Christian. Job had no knowledge of the devil. He didn't even know there was a devil. All right? He accused God. Now, at the beginning, he did not sin with his lips, but then he goes on to sin 74 times. Job accuses God 74 times of being his enemy. I give you one example, Job 6.4. Job 6.4 says, For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. Does that sound like God? The arrows of the Almighty are within me. My spirit drinks in their poison. He's accusing God of shooting arrows of poison at his life. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. See the concept that Job has of God? And so it, while he didn't sin in the beginning in chapter 2, he, from chapter 3 on, he sinned a lot with his lips. He accused God 74 times similar kinds of accusations against God. So he's accusing God of being the, the one with the arrows. What do we know now with our knowledge? Paul's understanding in Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, 12 through 16. And I'll just read 12 and 13. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And it talks about quenching every fiery dart. Paul knew where they were coming from. Job thought they were coming from God. Paul knew they were coming from the enemy. See, Job wasn't born again. Job wasn't a Christian. We are. Job didn't have the armor of God. We do. Job didn't have a covenant. He had no knowledge of the devil. We do know now that he's a defeated foe, but we, we know of his existence and we know how he operates. Job didn't know any of that. All right, let's go on to the third difference. Job had a limited knowledge of God. Job barely knew God. 
It says in Job 42, 1 through 5, and I'll just I'll jump around here. At the end of the book, after 30-something chapters of theological debate and moaning and groaning and accusing God and all of this and his friends blaming everybody, and after all of that, at the end of the book, God appears to Job and has a conversation with him, and Job is blown away. And in chapter 42, he says, verse uh, 3, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. So there was limited knowledge of God transmitted orally through generations, but he didn't have his own personal experience with God until now. And he says, therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job recognized his lack of knowledge and repented. And he recognized all the stupid things he had said. He said, I have uttered that which I did not understand. He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away and repented of it. There are many pastors in the world today still saying it. This is tragic. But this is why so many people aren't enjoying the full abundant life that Jesus came to give us. Because they don't know God. They haven't moved into the grace of God and believed how good he is. All right. Fourth difference between Job and a New Testament Christian. Big difference. Job wasn't born again. Nobody was born again before the day of Pentecost. Because Jesus had yet to sit down at the right hand of God accomplishing redemption for us. This section of Healing University is about redemption, healing in redemption. But no one was born again, and Job certainly wasn't born again. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 talks about the new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Job wasn't in Christ, and he was not a new creation. He was not born again. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Job did not experience that. It was not even available to him. Job was a man of integrity. He walked in what he knew. There was no law to condemn him, so God could bless him because of just the integrity of his heart. But we know his heart didn't really know God. He was just an upright man doing the best he knew how to do. God blessed that. But he wasn't born again. He didn't have a covenant. He didn't know God, and he didn't know about the devil. And so we've established quite a few differences already. The next difference is that Job had no spiritual weapons with which to fight. Obviously, if he had no covenant, he had no weapons. What do we have? When you think about how equipped we are, we have the name of Jesus. We have the blood of Jesus. We have the new covenant established upon a better covenant established upon better promises. We have the armor of God, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit. We have the word of God. We have the promises of God. We have the gifts of the spirit. We have the keys of the kingdom. We have the authority to bind and loose. We are so well equipped that it's tragic that so many Christians run around moping and groping and moaning and groaning and talking about how bad things are. And they have all of their equipment stashed in a closet somewhere 
They're not using the name of Jesus. They don't even understand it. They're not standing in the finished work of the blood of the cross. They're not standing in the promises of the New Testament. They're not filled with the Holy Spirit. They're not using the gifts of the Spirit. They're not dressed in the armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness. They're not using the keys of the laws of spiritual laws of the kingdom. And yet we have all of that available to us, and Job didn't. We need to learn who we are and what we have in Christ so that we don't end up like Job. Job is not our example, folks. All right, so he had no spiritual weapons. The next difference between Job and a New Testament Christian is that Job worshipped God in ignorance. He didn't know what he was doing. He was making it up as he went. In uh, Job 1.5, Job 1.5 says, So it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify his children. It says them, it's referring to his children. So they would have birthdays and they would have feasts and gather together and carry on for a number of days. And so it says Job uh, would send and sanctify them and would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings. Now remember, he has no covenant. There's nothing established about this. He's just doing it. According to the number of them all, for Job says, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Or in other words, he's making up his own way of of reconciling possible sin with God. He's just making this up as he goes. He didn't know how to worship God. He was just doing what he sensed might be a good thing to do in case there was sin in his family. That's not how we worship. We worship in spirit and in truth. John 4, 23 and 24 says, But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, born again, and in truth, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. They will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Not the way Job was doing it. Maybe somebody sinned, so I'll sacrifice burnt offerings. That's not worship. We have a true worship. The minute you're born again, you're in spirit. And when Jesus is Lord, you're in truth. And then you worship God in spirit and in truth. Hallelujah. All right, let's go on to another difference. What's another difference between Job and a New Testament Christian? It says, or I have in my notes, Job lived in fear. Well, people that are born again that have a covenant with God and know the devil is under their feet shouldn't live in fear. But Job lived in fear. It says in Job 3, 25 through 26, For the thing that I greatly feared has come upon me. It wasn't just some fear. It was great fear. Job feared. Why? He didn't have anything to fall back on. He wasn't born again. He had no covenant. He had no knowledge of the devil. He had no knowledge of God, basically. Very limited. And he was worshiping as, as he felt like. And so, obviously, he's, he's going to be living in a place of lack of confidence, place of fear. He says, the thing I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. He had no peace. We could add that to the list. We have peace that passes understanding, or we have access to it. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, for trouble comes. So Job lived in fear. 
Christians should not live in fear. We have a new nature. We're born again. And God, 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear. That's the old man. What we have is the new man is power and love and a sound mind. Job didn't have power, love, and a sound mind. Job lived in fear. He wasn't born again. And finally, the last difference between Job and a New Testament believer, the last one in this particular concept, is that Job had no intercessor. Job had an accuser. The accuser of the brethren had access to God because of Adam's sin and could stand before God and accuse and pick out Job and accuse him before God. He did not have anyone praying for him on his behalf. What do we have? Who is our intercessor? Who legally accomplished redemption and sat down at the right hand of God so that there is no more accuser? There is no one who can accuse us because we have a legal representative, the son of man, who accomplished redemption with his own blood, took his own blood in the tabernacle made without hands and sat down at the right hand of God. And it says in Romans 8.34, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Job had an accuser. We have an intercessor. We have the one who accomplished redemption, completed redemption, sat down. It is finished. And he prays for us. Praise God. So, and we can, we can add Hebrews 7.25 to this. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. When you come to God, you have somebody praying for you. That's Jesus. It's a pretty good prayer. He ever lives to make intercession for you. Job didn't have that. Job didn't know about the devil. Job didn't have a covenant. Job had no spiritual weapons, no spiritual gifts. Job didn't know God. Job worshipped according to whatever he felt like. Job lived in fear. His fears were realized. Job is not like a New Testament Christian. So when people come to me, And they say, well, Barry, what about Job? What about Job? Well, let me give you a list of things about Job, okay? Job wasn't born of a virgin. Job wasn't full of the Holy Spirit. Job didn't heal the sick and set the captive free. Job didn't defeat the devil. Job didn't die for my sins. Job didn't descend into the lowest parts of the earth and take the the keys of hell and death. Job didn't rise from the dead. Job didn't take his blood into the tabernacle of God. Job didn't sit down at the right hand of God, having accomplished redemption for us. Job didn't send the Holy Spirit to empower the church and anoint us with power from on high. Job didn't give gifts to men, gifts of the Spirit or the gifts of apostle, prophet, and what have you. Job didn't promise to return in the future and defeat utterly his enemies. Who did all that? Jesus did all that. So when people say, what about Job? I say, what about Jesus? Who are you identifying with? Are you going to identify with Job 
and say, well, maybe my life is like Job. And you're going to discount, diminish, and negate everything that Jesus did for you. You're going to choose to identify with a man that didn't know God and repented for his ignorance. Rather than identify with Jesus who came to save you and set you free. And pour out his grace upon you and redeem you and give you his armor and his gifts and his name and his promises. You're going to say, I don't know about that, but maybe I'm like Job. I have a word for that. Well, several. (laughs) But listen, you are not a Jobian. You are a Christian. Identify with the one who redeemed you, not with the one who didn't know anything about the things of God, about covenant, about the life without fear. Identify with the one that came to set you free. We are not like Job. Praise God. All right. So, let's move on to our next topic, our next question. What about Paul Thorne? All right? So, if I can convince somebody that Job isn't our example, then they come up with, well, you know, what about Paul? That's New Covenant. And Paul had a thorn in the flesh. And I had one guy say to me, Barry, it was a thorn in the flesh. It was in the flesh. And he makes a big deal out about that. So, so we want to look at that and see what is a thorn in the flesh? What was Paul going through? All right, so in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, it says, Paul said, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me. There's a pretty good clue right there. Lest I be exalted above measure. Well, who took Paul up into the third heaven to begin with? God did. Who spoke to him incredible things of the gospel? God did. Who wanted Paul to hear these things? God did. Who sent him back and commissioned him to go to the nations? God did. Who's going to be threatened by that ministry? Not God. Satan's going to be threatened. So who then therefore wants to discredit and minimize and, and, and kill off this ministry if possible? Not God. Satan. Satan is the enemy of the revelation. God's not the enemy. Who would want to humble Paul and make him look insignificant? Not God. God is the one that brought him up and wanted to show him these things. Lest he be exalted wasn't that he was going to exalt himself. God wouldn't have shown this to to Paul if he knew he was going to exalt himself. The people were going to exalt him for the greatness of the revelation, and that was driving Satan crazy. And so it says there was a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. Didn't come from God, it came from Satan to buffet him. So we're going to find out what this is. Traditionally, people talk about, well, Paul, or excuse me, God made Paul sick to keep him humble. And Paul asked to be healed, and God said, no, I'm not going to heal you, you're just going to have to deal with it. And they say, so maybe I'm like Paul. Maybe I have a thorn in the flesh. Well, first requirement, if you want to be like Paul, you have to get caught up into the third heaven. So if you haven't been caught up into the third heaven, eh, you're not like Paul. All right? So we need to get that out of our thinking right away. But the question then is, what is a thorn in the flesh? And was Paul sick? Was a thorn in the flesh a sickness that God refused to heal? Because if God refused to heal a sickness, then we have an exception to redemption. And if we can create an exception to redemption, faith is dead. You can't have faith if there is an exception. All right? So let's look at what Paul went through. 2 Corinthians 11, 
2 Corinthians 11, 23. I'll start in verse 23. And let's look at what he listed as his trials and tribulations as an apostle. He said, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, meaning being whipped, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often or at the point of death, I assume that's what he's referring to. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one, 39 stripes or whipping, beatings. Uh, That happened five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Can you imagine? Once I was stoned. We know about that in Acts 14, stoned and left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of Gentiles, in perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. In weariness and toil and sleeplessness, often in hunger and thirst and fastings, often in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things which come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Wow, what a list. If that were the job description for apostle, would you sign up? All right. This is what Paul went through. What's missing from that list? What does he not mention in all that he went through daily, it doesn't mention sickness. It's a glaring absence in the list of his tribulations. He doesn't mention sickness. Okay? Mentions being stoned, being beaten, being left for dead, shipwrecked, all of this. And he didn't say, and I was really sick the whole time. He doesn't say that. Okay? So what is a thorn in the flesh? Let's go to Numbers 33. Paul is using a figure of speech found in the Old Testament. I'm going to read you three examples. There's a fourth I didn't include this time, but I'm going to give you three examples of this kind of language. Paul knew exactly what he was saying. Numbers 33.55 says, concerning God speaking to Israel about taking the promised land, he says, if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, Then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants to your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Is this talking about sickness? No way. This is talking about if Israel doesn't drive out the enemy in the promised land, that they are going to be a continual bother to them. And it's analogous to irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, That's figurative language for a persistent enemy constantly harassing you. That's what's being said here. Let's get the witness of two. We'll go to Joshua 23.13. Joshua 23.13 says, Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you and scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Is that talking about sickness? No, it's figurative language describing an enemy. If they refuse to push out the enemy, then the enemy is going to cause them all kinds of complications in the years that that, uh, pass. This is not literal. This is figurative. When Paul refers to a thorn in the flesh, he knows exactly what he's saying a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me or an enemy to hinder my ministry. 
a demonic presence to hinder my ministry is what he's talking about. Let's look at one more. Judges 2 verse 3. Judges 2 verse 3 says, Therefore I also said I will not drive them out before you. Same context. But they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. If you don't drive out the enemy Israel, they're going to be thorns in your side. Paul says, A thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, was given to me. And he he knows the Old Testament. He's a Pharisee. He knows what he's talking about. He's talking about an enemy in the land that is being a persistent harassment to Israel in the Old Testament, to his ministry in the New Testament. All right? So that brings us to the question then. Paul's praying, and he prays at least three times. We don't know if it's three times in one day or three times over 30 years. We don't know how often he prayed this prayer. But he asked the Lord to remove the thorn. And so we have a lot of traditional interpretations of God basically saying, suck it up. No, not going to do it. Uh, You just got to be sick if you believe in the sickness doctrine. Okay, well, let's look at this. In 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9, Paul says, concerning this thing, this thorn in the flesh, messenger of Satan, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you for my strength. Grace, strength, is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmity. So he's referring to this messenger of Satan and all the lists that I just read a few minutes ago, all that he went through, those are his infirmities or weaknesses or challenges that he's going through. I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ might rest upon me. In that list of infirmities, he didn't mention sickness. He mentioned everything but sickness. So God is saying to Paul, my grace is sufficient. Or in other words, I'm going to condense this for the sake of time. On the cross, Jesus did not take persecution and, and attacks from the enemy on the cross. Jesus took sin and sickness on the cross. But persecution for our faith and dealing with the enemy, that is still something that we have been equipped to take care of ourselves. And that is by grace. Grace is the name of Jesus. Grace is the blood of Jesus. Grace is the Holy Spirit. Grace is the better covenant. Grace are the promises of God. Grace is the armor of God. Grace are the keys of the kingdom. That's the grace of God. And and God said to Paul, and Paul knew this. He had written about grace himself. And and God said to him, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. What's taking place here? Paul is going through this life of being chased around and stoned and beaten and shipwrecked and all this. And it's a messenger of Satan stirring people up against him. And he got tired of it. I would get tired of it. And he went to God three times and said, please take this away. And God said, my grace is sufficient. Paul, you should know about grace. Paul knew what James had written in James 4, 7. Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Submit yourself to God, resist the messenger of Satan, and he will flee. But he comes back. Do it again. But he comes back. Do it again. But I'm tired. Please remove this from me. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. Resist him. Do it again. Do it again. 
God did not promise to remove the enemy from, from the world. He gave us the equipment to deal with him. And Paul knew this. He knew we were more than conquerors. He just got tired of conquering. Like anyone else, Paul was a man that just got worn out with this thing. But the grace of God is more than enough. And if you go to 2 Timothy, the last chapter of 2 Timothy, that is Paul's last letter that we have. He says, then the Lord has delivered me from every evil work. He gives a great testimony at the end of 2 Timothy of how God delivered him. And so he made it by the grace of God. He was able to to, uh, complete his course and finish his race. So, what's the thorn in the flesh? A messenger of Satan, a demonic presence that that came against him and buffeted him throughout his ministry. Paul got tired of being buffeted. He asked the Lord, take take this away. God said, my grace is sufficient for you. You can make it. And at the end of his life, 2 Timothy 4, he made it. He made it. There was victory at the end. So now some people say, well, what about Paul's eyes? Didn't he have an eye disease? Okay. So yeah, Paul ran around blind while he healed people. That doesn't make sense. But let's look at it. Galatians 4.13. Galatians 4.13 says, You know that because of a physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise. And people say, see, he was sick. There was something wrong with Paul. And it goes on to say, For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. And so they say, see, he had an eye disease. Paul couldn't see. Well, why didn't he say so? Why didn't Paul say in his list of trials and tribulations, and and on top of all that, I couldn't see where I was going, or I had this terrible eye disease? He never said that because it didn't exist. If you go back and study the book to the Galatians, a letter to the Galatians, the Galatian region to where this letter was sent was the first region that Paul preached in, in Acts 13 and 14. The Galatian region was his first missionary journey. And in the Galatian region, in Acts 14, Paul was stoned and left for dead. And then the Lord raised him up and he went to another town. And in that town, probably he had to recuperate from being stoned. I have no issue with the fact that perhaps his eyes were swollen shut. Perhaps he was bruised and and beaten from that stoning. Very probable that he had to recover. But whatever was was going on in, in the Galatian region, when he sent this letter to them, he's not referring to a sickness. He's referring to being stoned and recovering from the stoning. Now, did Paul ever have a cold? Did he ever get the flu? I don't know. But was he chronically sick throughout the entirety of his ministry and that was a thorn? No. No, there is no evidence of that whatsoever. He was beaten, he was whipped, he was stoned, but he wasn't sick in a chronic way. That wasn't the messenger of Satan or the thorn in the flesh. All right? Let's move on to the, to the last question now. What about the man born blind? And so we have in John chapter 9, it says, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? So immediately the whole concept of somebody sinned for this to happen. Okay, I'll talk about that. This man or his parents, that he was born blind. And Jesus answered and said, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. So what he's saying is, 
This isn't directly related to any personal sin on their part. Some sicknesses can be related to sin. In John chapter 5, Jesus told the man at the pool of Bethesda who had been there for many years, he said, go and sin no more, no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. So he's saying, you've been sick all these years because of sin, don't do it again. So sin can be, personal sin can be a reason for sickness. But in this case, it wasn't. We just have, folks, we just live in a, in a fallen world. And there is sin and corruption even into the DNA of the human race. And so things happen that weren't God's plan from the beginning because of Adam's sin. So it's not necessarily the guy's sin or his parents' sin. It's just sin. And corruption in the human race is the uh, birthplace of many, many physical afflictions. So they say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed with him. And people say, ah, so God made him sick for his glory. Well, no, God was, no one was glorifying God for this guy being blind. Nobody glorifies God when you get sick. I'll tell you when they glorify God is when you get well. Amen. When you get healed. Nobody was glorifying God for this man's blindness. What was going to bring God glory? What was going to bring God glory was healing. The grace of God for healing. That's when people started to glorify God. So we need to understand what is it that bring God, brings God glory. If sickness brings God glory and he makes people sick for his glory, then why did Jesus go around healing everybody? Why didn't he say, glory to God? I wish more of you were sick. I mean, nonsense makes sense to the religious mind. Uh, but not to my mind. All right? God doesn't get glory from sickness. Sickness is a result of the fall. It's a result of sin. And so God isn't making this man blind. But blindness or any affliction is an opportunity for the glory of God. That's what Jesus is saying. He said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. And then he healed him. What Jesus is saying in this passage isn't that sickness is for the glory of God. He was saying that sickness is an opportunity for the glory of God. And the glory of God isn't in the sickness. The glory of God is in the healing. That's why Jesus went around healing everyone who came to him because God was with him. And God gets glory when people get healed and get delivered and get set free and get raised up and step into their purpose and begin to walk in the grace of God. That's when God gets glory. Nobody was praising God while the man was blind. God didn't make him blind, but blindness was an opportunity. Deafness is an opportunity. Leprosy is an opportunity. Even dead people are an opportunity for the glory of God. And when we understand that Jesus came to glorify God and that he didn't make anybody sick, he healed everybody that came to him, then this, this story is very easy to understand. So hopefully that's helpful to you. So we've talked about Job. We're not like Job, bless God. You can be like Job if you want to be. But Job is a story of what happens when you don't have a covenant and you don't know God and you don't know who you are. Yeah, you can have a life like Job, but we shouldn't. 
We're not like Job. We have a covenant. We have the name. We have the, the promises. We have the weapons. We have the gifts of the Spirit. We are not like Job, and we have an intercessor praying for us. Paul's thorn was not a sickness. Paul's thorn was a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him, to, to make his ministry as complicated, as difficult as possible. And he got tired of having to overcome. But Jesus said, my grace is sufficient. And at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, I have finished my race. I have finished my course. He made it because he used the grace of God. John chapter 9, the man born blind, he wasn't made blind by God. No one glorified God for that. But God got a lot of glory when he got healed. Every sickness, folks, is an opportunity for the kingdom to invade and bring glory to God. Every sickness is violence against the kingdom. The kingdom suffers the violence of sickness and poverty and all kinds of other negativity. The kingdom suffers the violence of those things, but the violent take it by force. And we are not going to let the enemy steal our kingdom rights, our kingdom inheritance, our kingdom health. We have the right to reign in life and by the grace of God to say no in the name of Jesus, to submit to God's provision, to submit to God's grace, to resist the devil, to resist sickness, to resist cancer, to resist diabetes, to resist heart disease, whatever is going on or trying to go on in your body, you have grace. His grace is sufficient for you. And you can stand up and you can take your place in in the authority of Christ and begin to command health and healing in your body, and that will bring God glory. Amen? His head was so swollen and misshapen, he was almost unrecognized. He didn't pray. He didn't give us an opportunity to come up here. Poor old Job. Huh? I said, poor old Job. Poor old Job. He kind of got thrown in the deep end and had no clue what was happening. He did. He did, he didn't know. But how many believers are walking around today with the new covenant available that still don't know? That still don't know. I think, I get, you know, I guess there was a point in my life where I, I probably was looking for an excuse yeah. so I didn't have to believe. Yeah. I mean, I think there was probably a day that I was, but, yeah. you know, in my mind, there's a there's this this idealism that is almost like fatalism in, in a lot of ways. That mm-hmm. that as we you know if if all of a sudden we started having a discussion and we were talking about something good that God could do, yeah. and the first thing that you went to was what about Job? What about Paul's thorn? What about you know any of these other things? It just seems like to me that that you would you're just going to be the antagonizer of you know of of having a conversation about God and I think there's whole religions denominations and and things that are just designed to basically you know and, and if you want to know the truth about it I think it's just laziness they they're going to preach the they're going to preach getting saved every single week but, well, we, this keeps us from having to go and dig in and believe and actually go do something with our faith yeah. when it comes to the book of Acts. Yeah. Oh, 
man, you go to some churches, they never talk about the book of Acts. You go to some churches, and they're going to stay away from certain scriptures, you know, yeah. talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Right. First uh, Corinthians chapter 12 through chapter 14 is pretty much cut out of the Bible. Right. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that I, I, I think that we can have excuses for. Mm-hmm. And, and, I mean, we, now I have to constantly look and go, well, maybe there's an excuse for something. Yeah. Right, that, yeah. that I'm doing. We were talking about the last one um, where it said that the, the person who's sick calls for the elders of the church. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the power of agreement is the person who's sick has more will over themselves than I do. Sure. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, that doesn't yeah. keep me from not going out there and trying sure. to build people up, mm-hmm. go talk to them about healing. Right. Try to get them to the point of going, you know what, I think I can believe like you do. Yeah. Um, so, so yes, I, I think there's a, a point where people get get in there and they say, you know, by golly, I've never seen a miracle. I don't know if there is such a thing. Yeah. So I'm just going to go find all the doctrines that basically quashes any conversation about mm-hmm. it. Um, and and I, I find that to be very... Telling and also sad at the same time. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Very true. Very true. Why would somebody fight against it? <laughs> yeah. My son, Make an excuse against it. My yeah. son, we were talking to him about the the thorn in Paul's flesh. Uh-huh. And, and, I mean, he was, I don't know, he was probably, what, seven, eight years old. Somebody was talking to him about it. And he he said, well, you know, well, you know, people said he was sick or whatever. And I just took him to the Bible. I said, well, you know, they didn't have chapters and verses. This was put in by St. Jerome, right? So, <laughs> yeah. you know, we have to go back to the Bible and go, this was a letter. Yeah. I don't write a letter. You know, chapter 1, verse 1, yeah. Heather, I love you so much, verse yeah. 2, I, you know, yeah. It, yeah. it's not like that. that yeah. Don't Paul, tell us anymore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we don't want to read your letter. Verse 6, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to know what verse 5, 4, and 2, 1 is either. Yeah. But, yeah. but the thing is, yeah. is, I just took him back up to, to chapter 11. Yeah. And I just said, read all this. Yeah. I said, did that affect Paul's flesh? And, and he goes, yeah. Yeah. I said, well, if you had read chapter 11 and then chapter 12, all thinking it was mm-hmm. the same letter, mm-hmm. not, oh. Well, bits and pieces. Bits and pieces mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. Would you have thought that his yeah. the thorn in his flesh was this? And he said, absolutely. Yeah. And that's the problem that we have mm-hmm. a lot of times Context. is I think that people go and they just take out like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, chapter 12 or 6 mm-hmm. and they beat you over the head with yeah. it mm-hmm. and you're like man I didn't yeah. you, you just blew off a whole yeah. other set of chapters yeah 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 that's that is a huge thing in con- taking it in context and realizing that these letters were letters they weren't Paul didn't write in script in text right. you know one verse he didn't write in verses he wrote in letters right he wrote letters, and so that's that's a good point. Thanks, Dusty. It's a real good point. Anything I'm not going to mention because the the name, but um, I had a family member that we had a long talk about Job. Yeah. Probably 
three or four years ago. And one of the things that I, I, I brought I brought them to these scriptures because I'd heard Barry Bennett mm-hmm. and a couple other people yeah. teach on it too. And, you know, it's very much, uh, it, it's ingrained as doctrine that we, yeah. get, that we get into. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times we, we get scared about the things that, you know, we go, well, if that's untrue, then what else is untrue in the Bible? Right. Mm-hmm. If if what somebody told me yeah. that I trusted, yeah, and they misinterpreted, or they were the ones, and I really trusted them. They were my spiritual father. Yeah. They were yeah. the people, my parents. Yeah. You know, um, I call it folk teaching. Yeah. It's the stuff your folks told you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the you know, mm-hmm. if if you if when you're listening to a scripture. And you hear that pastor, your your dad, your yeah. mom, your grandparents, whomever it is, yeah. then essentially you're going, okay, I heard it through the filter they told me. About. Right. And so yeah. there's a lot of times I think we need to take some of these scriptures and go, yeah, Job was not a book written to show that God deals with us, right. you know, unfairly. Right. That you know that. It was it was basically to say that Job needed Job needed a, a, an intercessor. Uh, he yeah he needed, he needed a redeemer. somebody to help him. Mm-hmm. And by the way, he didn't even go through the scriptures like in in chapter twenty yeah. twenty one where an angel yeah came to Job, Job. Mm-hmm. and said this was not God <laughs> yeah yeah this was the devil yeah. sent yeah. to do this yeah. and then his friends came to him. Mm-hmm. And so his friends didn't know much more. No, his, his friends didn't help him out. His either. friends didn't know much more needed. Yeah, yeah. A lot yeah. of times, friends don't help you out. Yeah. Just that they are. <laughs> my dad had a whole different. I mean, my dad had a whole view of the Bible that was just off the wall, and that's how he was taught. Yeah, you know, black yeah. people were cursed, yeah. and. Mm-hmm. It's just crazy stuff. Yeah. And when you would try to explain it to him, he just wasn't going to get it. Yeah. You know, there wasn't no way. Yeah. Yeah. What we believe is powerful. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, it really is. Yes. And that's why it's so important. Yes, it's so important that we're believing truth. How about this? What we believe has power over us. Yes. Yes, it does. Absolutely. And I think if you believe correctly, it's powerful. Absolutely. I think if you believe incorrectly, it has power over it's you. About, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Anything else? I'm sorry. It was helpful for me to learn that Job was written before the covenant. Yes. Because I remember reading that chapter and going, it was just depressing. It was almost as bad as um, Solomon's. Song of, Song of Solomon. Uh-huh. Song of Solomon. That was just weird. Yeah. <laughs> that just creeps me out. I, like I well, don't actually, even know why it's in the Bible because that one just is weird and creepy. Yeah, and, like ivory tower. Yeah. <laughs> there are um, some theologians that believe, and 
I guess they have reason to. I'm not a theologian, so I don't claim to be. But that actually Job was the very first scripture book written. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've heard that. Before, heard that before, before Genesis, before um, that Job was the very if first book that was written. you read the chronological Bible, it's uh -huh. right at the beginning. I mean, yeah. Genesis is there, obviously. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the very first of Genesis, mm -hmm. but it's very, it's in Genesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all... Yeah. And really almost every chronological Bible is like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the first so. five books, what we call the Septuagint, or the, yeah. you know, they, are, they are written by Moses. Yeah. And they really believe that this was written before mm -hmm. Moses, before. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know. Yeah. Job was written, the first recorded. The chronological Bible there. The crow. <laughs> I was trying to think of the, the book the book that Solomon wrote that was it Ecclesiastics? Oh Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes. is yeah, it's kinda just, dark. Was he was yes, depressed. Dark it was depressing. very dark, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's I mean, yeah. and you gotta remember when I moved down here, you know, I come from a Catholic background, I've never been in the Bible. I and I It's <laughs> not where you start. <laughs> well and Joe kept telling me I needed to start in the New Testament. Yeah. My brain doesn't work that way. And, I, yeah. and, and what I tried to get Jill to understand was just because one person does it this way and it's okay for them doesn't yeah. work for all of us. Yeah. So don't push your, your agenda on me. Yeah. My, I had to read from the beginning to the end. Yeah. So, and nowhere in there did I get anything from the Lord to do otherwise. Yeah. It took me four years. Yeah. So I was doing this on my own. Yeah. I had nobody really guiding me, so yeah. it's fun to, as I grow in this, to have little things, little nuggets like this that kind of, yeah. like, shed some light on something that was like, because I remember reading in Genesis and that, just reading in the beginning, and I remember going to the class and just, like, going, he's an angry God. Mm -hmm. Like, I, where did you see the love coming from this? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was really, yeah. and they didn't have any, this this was at Briarwood, those people didn't really have any good revelation for me, so they just kind of gave me some haphazard response, and I let it go. I wasn't one of those students to keep pressing, because yeah. I didn't like, the answer they gave me was so weak, that I just like, whatever. But I had to read the Bible by myself, and really not have any understanding of it, and, so it's, it's that's why you take that's why you take your Bible and sit down and you go, Holy Spirit, yeah. I know you're in me. Yeah, well, that, I wasn't <laughs> and I know there. you're going to show me what this means. So I got to teach it. If you want to yeah. go on my website on wisdom, it was probably what a month ago, and I used Ecclesiastes and and Solomon, but essentially Solomon had went into sin, mm -hmm. and he this is after he had written, you know. Proverbs, and he had done all the, you know, he basically broke the kingdom apart. Mm -hmm. he, he was living in sin. He was going and getting wives and, and all these other things. If you read Ecclesiastes 1 and then you go all the way to the end, he changes his tune. Mm -hmm. So so by the time yeah. he gets to the end, he realizes, I've I messed up. up. Yeah. I was the problem. Yeah. And God, God is good. And good. I was the Problem. So, if you're reading Ecclesiastes chapter one, he uses terms like, you know, 
Uh, wisdom is basically uh, a horrible thing, and it leads you into, you know, depression and, and anxiety and everything else. By the time you get to the end, he's like, no, God is the ultimate wisdom. Is good. He is good. Wisdom is good. And it, it's good. You, you, you need to go all the way through it if you're wanting to, to kind of get the full picture of where Solomon's head was at. It was. I just think at the time I, when I got to that chapter, I was just like, boy, oh boy. Well, and not only that, they were doing a, um, a bridal word at the time, so I was still there. They were doing a little teaching on, on it, and it was just like, I struggled. Like, it was just depressing. Yeah. <laughs> I was so new, though. This was like my first couple of years moving out here. Yeah. So all of this was new. I had to learn how to actually, like, I didn't know what, book, you know, one verse this like I didn't know how to eat it. Right. Yeah. I get that. I would never forget. I was a grown woman and I'll tell you all this. When I gave my life back to Jesus, gave my life back to the Lord, I said, I'm, I never read this as a kid. I read what my Sunday school teacher told me to read or whatever, but I had never really read the Bible through. And I said, I'm going to read this through. And, and we had the same advice, start in the New Testament. You know, you're, new, you're a new believer, start in the New Testament. And I started and I read the first four Gospels and I went, I never knew that was the same story from four different people. I mean, I was like, wait a minute, I already read this. Wait a minute. And then I realized, I went, and I asked Barry, I said, did you know this is the same story written from three different Four different, and he's like, no, I don't know. <laughs> so, so, yeah, we all start with nothing. We all I, start I, I guess I didn't understand the logic, though. I mean, I guess for someone to tell me to read the New Testament first. Yeah. But it, they it's speak, because that's where you are today. Yeah, but... You're not an Israelite. It is. You still want it to... Is. Like, why would you not want to know it what is. the Old Testament says? And her logic was, I mean, she really, really was telling yeah. me, don't worry about the Old Testament. Well, and I just, yeah. it didn't matter. Yeah. Once, when once I get you, stubborn enough, I'm like, you do it your way, <laughs> I'll do it my way. Once you know <laughs> Jesus and you understand the New Testament, then you can go back and read the Old Testament and you can see Jesus in the Old Testament. And that grace was there too. Well, when but I to but when you start there, you, that, that you <laughs> that hurt. then I, I was like, oh, I was interested in it. But yeah. And, you know, I thought God sounded like Charlton Heston, and God was mad, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'll tell you this. So if anybody struggles with the Old Testament, so the first five books of the Bible is basically the, it, it's, it's the, the books that, that they, you know, they teach the Jewish, yeah. you know, Jewish yeah. children yeah. out of, right? Mm -hmm. So they were gathered together for a purpose. But all of the prophets really were only within 450 years. If you go take the major and the minor prophets, everybody thinks, oh, that was that span the whole time Israel was around. It was 450 years, basically. Before Jesus. And so, so then there was 400 years of silence before Jesus. So if you go out and you look at the five first five books of the Bible, and then you start looking at all the prophets, all of that was talking to Israel specifically because they were sinning, and they they were about to be attacked, and God was sending the prophets to say, 
you know, come back. Repent, come back. And a lot of people don't know that. They think, oh, there is this, and there's good stuff in there, no lie. But it, it's like if you go and read, you know, you know, uh, Jeremiah, you think, man, God that is, is really depressing. <laughs> you know, God, you're mean. You're this. You're that. But you don't know that they were killing their kids. Yes. They were yeah. sacrificing. Yeah. It, it was an actual big headed, uh, you know, like cow with horns on it that had these hands that come out and they would heat it up to thousands of degrees. Like their babies. And they would throw like their, their babies, babies in there. In there. Oh. So when people go, oh, well, you know, God was just mean because he went and he allowed all these things to happen. They actually were better off going to Babylon. Yeah, they really were. Yeah. The other thing is, at least for me, is the Old Testament really is not a whole lot different than what's going on in our world. There is so much violence and killing in the Old Testament. I mean, they killed out. They just wiped everybody. And I don't mean, I mean like their own families, like kings. Yeah. You know, they had such wicked kings in, in the northern kingdom kingdom mm-hmm. that they would wipe out everybody because they were worried about their own self. Losing their place. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's crazy. It's, it's really, a, and then judges. I mean, my gosh. Read that. And you'll yeah. be going, oh, when first time I read judges, I thought, oh, my goodness. Is this <laughs> in the Bible? I struggled with is it numbers or Leviticus where they get into all the details of the of the oh, begot, and they begot, repeat begot. it and, every, and begot, I was just begot, like begot, begot, that's the one I struggled because I was like repetition of the exact yeah but those names have those names have so much <laughs> meaning right yeah so right. so the law of Moses Leviticus was the law that was given to the priests. Yes. So the priest learned out of the book of Leviticus how to be priest. Yeah. The law of Moses was given to the people. The, the, yeah. the everyday people that weren't Levi, yeah. Leviticus, yeah. if you weren't from the Levi tribe, tribe mm-hmm. you didn't even read Leviticus. It was not even a part of your mm-hmm. of your daily or, or life mission. So, so you, you, you have to think about it from that perspective. At 47 years old, I rededicated my life. Actually, it was at a church that Dusty and Heather and Reba was going to at the time. And I went home that night and I told Jack, I said, I knew a good bit about the Bible, but I had never really studied it yeah. like I should. Yeah. Like I said, I'm in my 40s. So my first thought is, I'm a graphic artist and all this, and it's like, okay, I'm going to the bookstore. I bought a book called The Bible 101. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about the guy that wrote it or anything. But I prayed before I went, Lord, I want to study the Bible. Show me what I need to get. Because I knew if I sat down what little bit I'd read of the Bible, I was lost beyond words. That was the best book because it broke each book down. And it explained what it meant. It explained Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mm -hmm. It explained why each book was written. And, and why they too. were, yeah. yeah, oh, it was amazing. Groups of yeah. people. I read that whole book through three times because I was so entrenched by it. Yeah. Sounds like yeah. uh, the Bible for dummies, you know. When you say one, oh, one, you all those books like that. Yeah. This was God. This was yours. My friend gave me a book, and I don't know if that's it um, to kind of help me when I was going through it. 
Oh, that, that was the best. And I, like I said, I don't even know who, who wrote it. And I can't even find it now. But it was wonderful. And it explained enough so that when I sat down to read the Old Testament, it explained where this shows up in the New Testament. Or in the New Testament, why this references the Old Testament. So that was very helpful. That's good. Was That's good. Well, one thing to wrap it up on that is know that Jesus, it's all about Jesus. Absolutely. And the, Jesus said, in the volume of the book, it's written in me. That's right. It's all, it's all about. It's either, yeah, all those types of shadows in the Old yes. Testament point us to Christ, point us to Jesus. And then the New Testament. That's where we live. All the way. Anything else? Dusty, you got anything else? Anybody else? It's good. It's good. You know, one, one thing for me is, is when he first started, when they first started talking, mm -hmm. um, he said about that there's no room for doubt at all. Yeah. And, um, you know, I have a husband who's got mm -hmm. a an illness that he lives with and struggles. Yeah. I mean, really struggles, struggles, struggles. And it's so hard not to keep, I mean, I keep saying, I don't have any doubt. He's, you're healed, you're healed. Uh, you know, I don't say that to him. I'm saying sure. that, you know, yeah. just yeah. when I'm, you know, by myself. Yeah. And I don't know, it's just so hard. It's really hard not to to cross that line. I can do it for other people, but yeah. I just can't do it for my husband. Yeah. How does your husband feel about Pardon me. How does your husband feel about healing? I don't think he believes. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I mean, I think he, he believes in God. I just don't think he has any concept of this. Yes. And I don't think he's interested in this. Yeah. Because he has lived with it since he's, well, for almost 60 years. Mm -hmm. So, And I mean, it's a terminal. I mean, not terminal. It's a So, yeah, yeah, that's what I was fixing to say. It's probably because of where where you are. So, like, we still feel it, mm -hmm. even though we sit there and we speak it over ourselves. Mm -hmm. That's where the whole we haven't fully convinced ourselves that we're still feeling pain. It's hard to, I can see where people fall into that, that they don't believe in the healing, and it's, or it's not for anyone because you can say something, but. You are not fully there, and you're not seeing the results, and we want to see the results. And if we're not, so that might be where he's. Yeah. I know that's what my you, you got to get to a point that you just, you know that you know that you know that you know. Mm -hmm. We need to pray. Because my mom is just his fault. Yeah. Yeah, we yeah. prayed a few weeks ago. Because his ago. needs changing. 
Yeah, yeah. it really does because yeah. you know I, I just see him as um, I think he's probably like a lot of people. You know, like I was ten years ago. You know, where I was interested in other things instead of God, and I didn't have him first in my mind. He was he had to be on the list. He was on the list. Yeah. And I mean, I think he's he's there. Like he gets up first thing in the morning and he works out, which is pretty amazing. But I don't do that. But he works out, and uh, and I mean, and does a lot. You know, like a good 45 minutes and sweats and you know lifts weights and does all this kind of stuff. But um, you know, he's listening to sports. You know, the whole time he's listening to sports, and then he, I see him on the on his phone, and I guess now I don't know if Google does it or who does it, but somebody does it. Where there's all these news stuff, and he's reading every one of those. And then, you know, you can, I can see him and he's, you know, getting in depth in them. And then he tells me about them and I go, I just go, I'm not ready for that yet. Yeah. You know, usually, yeah. I just, you know, yeah. I don't care about that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, we do need to because that's really it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. Because yeah. he's trying to pray and pray and pray. He's got to be there. He's got to. Yeah. Well, the Bible says, you know, those who see and the door will be open. Um, I think there's a lot of times, and there's a lot of people, and some people find where they're at. And um, you know, I had a person tell me a while back, it was like, I'm not really looking for anything more out of God. I just want to have, I just want to, to have what I have. Mm. And you know, at the end of the day, you kind of go, okay, well then you're not going to find anything else. Right. So, so those are the kind of things that there needs to be a, a change of, of his mindset and heart to say, you know what, I'm going beyond just just my, okay, I've got a physical ailment, I can deal with it. If he wants more, that God starts, you know, the Holy Spirit is there to comfort. So if you pray that the Holy Spirit is, you know, that he comes and comforts, he's going to be, he's going to be challenged. So you can we can pray that we can get an agreement that that happens. Now he may fight against that, and, and that's that's his will. So so I mean, it, there's you know it still comes down to his will. You know, yeah. but but I, I I do think that sometimes there's a stubborn faith. And I mean I think in some respects you know some people just go hey I'm just going to bully through it. And, you know, they don't see a need to, to actually say, I'm going to go lean on God. I, I, I can push through. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's yeah. like that. Yeah. What's his name again? Mike. Why don't we do this? Why don't, as a, as, why don't we, at the very end, we close it out with prayer, we get the agreement of one. Yeah, it's on and off. You turn off.